0: In the marketing communications landscape, commercial sponsorships are often viewed as somewhere between invaluable marketing tools and a chairman's whim. Fortunately, this is beginning to change, with sponsorships maturing from mere bit players to playing genuine and major roles in delivering commercial returns and benefits. But how do we know when it's done correctly and efficiently? Salesandmedia.com decided to ask some experts and try and find out what really makes sponsorships commercial. Hi, this is Paul Gardner, and today I'm talking to Natalie O'Brien from Natalie O'Brien & Co. Hello, Natalie. Good afternoon. Natalie um, Natalie O'Brien & Co., apart from being your name, w- what does it do? What's it all about?
1: Well, I, I, I describe us really being in the business of experiences, and what we essentially do is, is we work with organizations to create plans that really look at what is the customer experience right across every touchpoint of the business. And Paul, the best way that I can describe it in coffee-loving Melbourne is that you can buy the commodity of coffee for 25 cents a, a cup oh, and don't tell
0: me that i can spend four dollars 50 a day don't tell me $20. well
1: that's right well i'm going to explain because you're obviously in the market for an experience so you can do that or you can go and have the service of going I think it's 7-Eleven where you can get that dollar cup of coffee which i which i heard is is really quite good or i'm really looking at the the businesses that that really make sure that that experience at every point you know from the minute they walk in the coffee shop someone says hello the environment feels warm there's a bit of great music going on they remember your name they remember that you're a soy latte and that's where like you say you pay $4.50 because that experience you know really fulfills you and so I really like using the coffee analogy in terms of how you really kind of build the customer experience so that you can get a premium for your product.
0: Isn't that a bit nebulous though? I mean, who's saying I've got a twenty five cent cup of coffee and your job is to build these artificial barriers or releases or satisfactions that take it from twenty five cents to four dollars fifty?
1: Well, I think the thing is that, um, the world is so competitive that people are looking for something that feels like it's customized, makes them feel good, and is a point of difference. And I think that if you're a price sensitive person and that's what you're looking for, but I think that we're all looking for things, particularly now, that actually make us feel warm and fuzzy and, and make us feel good about ourselves. And so, You know, I think this is gonna be an interesting period of time where competition is gonna be tough and by building a stronger experience from you know, from website to to hotel booking all the way through the experience is gonna be a really important point of difference to the competitor.
0: Natalie, you spent a hell of a lot of time at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. I was Mm gonna say ten years. We're saying ten years?
1: I was actually fourteen. I was having so much fun.
0: Fourteen years. I mean, obviously given COVID nineteen, food and wine landscape has changed quite a lot. Have you have you seen as yet and we're still coming back, I guess, from from that disaster. Which parts have changed in a temporary fact? It's just sort of a pause, we're back again. And which parts do you think have changed forever?
1: Yeah, look, it's obviously hospitality, um tourism and attractions opened those businesses that decided to open 48 hours are, you know are working in an incredibly challenging environment particularly when we we, we talk about experiences so the social distancing the cleaning and sanitization practices that will really need to be another level, the nervousness around protecting their own staff that are out on the floor and, and connecting with people, it certainly is a really foreign environment for, you know, what we enjoy as, you know, Melbourne and its dining experiences. So I think there was certainly an air of excitement amongst hospitality owners that I had That were open. There are also another wave waiting for that little bit later in the month, where the numbers and capacity can actually make it a little bit more viable.
0: If you owned a restaurant and got the landlords can't throw you out, and the banks give you a six-month moratorium, and you've got job keeper till September, and you can mostly have twenty people distance. 1.5 1.5 metres apart and a 4 meter square region. Why the hell would you open?
1: It's an interesting and I think it's been a mixed response. I think that it's, you know, not one size fits all for the industry in terms of those really wanting to, to come back. Um, I think the bigger venues are got to wait for that later milestone where it does make sense and it is much more financially viable. I think for certain operators, they really want to get their staff back in they want to sort of build their teams again um, they miss that social contact with their customers they want to get their brand in the market and and really start but i agree it's 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 definitely a challenging time for for industry to operate
0: so if, you, if you're running a market a, a cafe right now at the pran market would you open or not open
1: Oh, that's a tough one. I think that uh, with all things considered, i probably weigh it up a little bit and probably go with the second wave that does allow more flexibility on the people because I think the other thing that's really important, we don't just go to the local cafe because it's great coffee or it's close by. We go because it's got an ambience, a je ne sais quoi, a, a feeling to it that's really important. And I think that a factor that the industry hasn't had to work with before for is this social distancing that we're talking about which takes away part of the experience which is really important for some customers
0: and which you suspect will probably be in in vogue for at least another six to twelve months i guess
1: yeah i I, you know i again it's it is a day-by-day proposition but certainly the outlooks you know till till the end of this year it certainly looks like will be these restrictions will be in place for medium and hopefully not long term
0: now, Lee, when I, I want to take you back to your Melbourne Food and Wine Festival days, which I, I rudely said 10, you correctly said 14. I mean, <laughs> you talk about your partnerships. I mean, how different was it with partnerships with things like landlords, uh, media, corporate and government? I mean, how did you approach them differently?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Even before I took up my spot at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, I'd always been in parts of the tourism sector that, partnerships were really important and in the early days in the tourism it was partnering up with airlines and hotels and events and and attractions and I think what was interesting when I started at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival what I didn't realize when I jumped in how reliant it was on partners and those partnerships first and foremost were the industry that you were representing They were the important partners that we needed to build relationships to basically curate the program that we delivered. And then on top of that, we... We had partners that were incredibly important from corporate partners at presenting and naming rights which really gave us both the funds and dollars but also the in-kind support that they would give over and above the relationship. Our media partners were significant and important and at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, we often looked much bigger than what we were because we had huge reliance on partnerships and that included, you know, anything from our office and location at Param Market was sort of a part pot, partnership arrangement as well. So it was really an integral part to how the festival, I guess, broadcast a much bigger footprint. and. In a lot of ways, a global footprint due to all of the partnerships. But I have to say, Paul, when you kind of undid it, it was quite a complicated beast because of all the layering of partnerships that we relied on.
0: How, how much was how much was cash and how much was value in kind as a percentage?
1: Yeah, it was. Our base funding was sort of you know sitting around twenty eight percent, and then it was almost equal parts to ticketing versus cash and in kind so in a lot of respects the in kind was important I think maybe because of the sector we were in so things like having a wine partner or a gin partner in an in kind way was really important because obviously we were able to on sell that at a margin so for us and maybe not for all organizations that in-kind partnership was incredibly valuable for us and I think coffee was another example um, when you add up the amount of coffee or or indeed gin or sparkling that you serve in a festival it, it, it is a good return back in terms of partnership.
0: So what what came first so obviously you run a festival and uh, your business now is to advise people do you suddenly say tell me how much is going to run this festival and try and find the sponsorship or do you say here's the sponsorship it's going to be likely to be available cloth accordingly.
1: Yeah, I think it's so interesting, Paul. I think that given I have most of my career is really built campaigns and products and, and marketing with partnership, it's almost that I approach things with partnership in mind. And so I think partnerships can be found in so many ways. As you say, you can really look into the market to see who's heavily advertising at this point in time. What business would be a really good option because of their audience or their brand alignment? What potential partner might even be physically located to the particular activity or service that you're doing? Uh, I even like to look out who would be an aspirational partner that would make you look better because they're more cutting edge or something that you're not. And I even sort of draw on the network of people that you know to say wouldn't it be good to work with them because I think over time, partnerships became less about an investment of money and go away and do this, but more about a true collaboration where mutual benefits are delivered. And so it's really interesting. I think it can come from a number of ways. You obviously need to set a budget and a target and go after that. But I also think there's a sort of organic process that happens as well.
0: And so what part of the process do you start panicking where you say, listen, we we set out, we think food and wine (laughs) needs to be X, Y, Z, but, you know, we've just been approached by BHP, which has nothing to do with food and wine, but I think we should make them partners. Well, what part do you panic and do that and throw (laughs) out all those principles? Or do you say, no, no, we're going to stick to the principles and stay true. We don't want their filthy, rotten money. We want, to, we want something that makes sense from an Essence point of view. Yeah,
1: I think that's a really interesting thing and it, and it kind of depends on the timing of year. So traditionally the festival would run in March. In October that we would start advertising things and I guess if you've advertised something to the market that you haven't fully covered, um, yeah. there might be a few interesting partners that might slip in and one of the examples of that was at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival each year we would stage the longest lunch that would have 1,000 okay. yeah, or 2,000. Sure, sure people and i remember one year and i've actually forgotten the name of it but it was a particular pill that you could sort of take that would stop you having a hangover so i do remember that you know that was one that you know was kind of borderline should we all be popping this pill so that we can drink a bit more against responsible serving of alcohol so
0: it wasn't hydroquarics and all the presents taken
1: no, and I forget that, and I, ha- I haven't seen it on the market since. I think it was sort of fairly sort of low key, but I also do recall, Paul, that each year we would build a pop-up restaurant on a basically a piece of concrete between Southgate and Crown in Melbourne, and uh, we had basically sold to the media that we're going to build this incredible urban coffee farm and I remember this particular year that it was a couple of days before Christmas and I was really panicking because we didn't have the money and particularly outside temporary spaces are really really expensive and I remember being connected to Tony Scavallo who Obviously, would have been sort of the person that was able to help. And uh, a couple of days before Christmas, he was drawing up on a notepad, and I was kind of praying that he would he would think this was a good idea to help. And indeed, he did, and connected okay. us with an engineering the design company that was able to help us. But I have to say, I wasn't quite sure what that Christmas was going to be like because I was very nervous of what we would do and what we promised to the market.
0: I'm talking to Natalie O'Brien who's the Managing Director of Natalie O'Brien and Company. Natalie, so when you find a sponsor and the sponsors you've dealt with, and we'll talk about a few other um, areas we've covered in a moment, what are they looking for in return on investment? Are they looking for sales or awareness? I mean, what are they looking for and how do you deliver that?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting in terms of what a potential sponsor is actually looking for, and I think that's the really important thing. And I think it's got a lot of um similarities to dating in terms of obviously you know what you're looking for you know what your deliverables are but you don't really want to impose that on somebody you really want to understand what their imperatives are and and tease them out with them so
0: doesn't that go back to my previous question that at at the end you say that'll do that's close enough (laughs)
1: no well, that's interesting. And I think, you know, there there are sometimes, in terms of, you know, a market and demand that you might work with a partner that's possibly not as aligned as you would like. And I think that that causes all sorts of fish hooks down the track. But I think, in terms of the best partnerships that you can have, are the partnerships that there is true alignment and clear understanding of what the deliverables are. And I also think that the other thing that endeared us to often, you know, we had two sponsors that were 20-year sponsors of Melbourne Food and Wine, and during that time, they did change their marketing imperatives and did change their positioning. And so you need to move with that change. And because you grow as an organisation, you can offer deliver attributes and marketing outputs and eyeballs that you may not have been able to deliver five years previously. So I think that there may be instances where a sponsor or a partner really just wants to get into the market. It's a one-off thing but I think most of the partnerships that we had were truly building year on year and and I think a good partnership is also one that sort of takes you into new territory and you get to do some exciting new things because they're willing to trust you to do something a little bit different in the market.
0: I think the experimental part is really interesting because if you compare eyeballs in food and wine you'd say listen Why don't you just advertise on MasterChef? That's going to get you more eyeballs for people interested in food and wine, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And I guess there's going to be partners that are looking purely for that, and so that's why that – dating analogy is really important because you need to be really clear about what you do do and what you don't do and I think at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival it was really important for us to have big numbers and so there were parts of our program that might have 150,000 people along the river so that you can tick that imperative for those that need to get to large volumes of people but most importantly and the area that the team would enjoy most is some of the smaller bespoke things that drove huge media coverage both here and overseas that was also important to deliver back to some of the partners as well.
0: So Natalie from a philanthropic point of view I know you served on Stephanie Alexander's board and I know you've just recently started a project with the Aboriginal Cultural Centre when you have a commercial proposition like Melbourne food and wine versus a philanthropic proposition how much difference is that for sponsors?
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think there is definitely differences in terms of philanthropic partners, and I think that in terms of really understanding what partners that don't suit what you're doing, and I think you know, I think using Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden Foundation, clearly um, it's it's a program for children nationally, and it's about healthy food and healthy eating, and so there were definitely partners that weren't appropriate who may like the alignment. And I think that when you've got an educational or a philanthropic call uh, that you're working on, that you really do need to make sure the alignment works for both parties. And and I also think that often in philanthropic and charity organisations is often the metrics aren't exactly what a corporate might be looking for as well so it's really about repackaging those values that have that are harder to sort of place a return on investment but are about delivering you know social and community benefits back to the communities so there are definitely some subtle differences and I think in the dating process of philanthropic partnerships sometimes after a while, you realise that the foundation's not going to be able to deliver on those highly commercial return on investment that the commercial partners in, are indeed looking for.
0: So are they different people you talk to? I mean, Obviously, with a commercial sponsorship, you talk to, I guess, the marketing directors and the partnership and sponsorship directors, and I guess with philanthropic, you talk to the CEOs. Are they different audiences or are they one and the same person?
1: It's Sometimes they're the same audience, but sometimes it may be the foundation of the corporate partner you know whether okay. that's
0: yeah, yeah sure
1: yeah so so they they will be and so the so you know, the guidelines and the process will be sort of quite different. And then others, um, recently Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden Foundation uh, signed on Coles as a partner and I think that was probably about five months ago. And so that was um, a pure relationship in in obviously an audience where families and children guide what parents put in their supermarket trolley and, you know, there was definitely benefits but also I think as part of that relationship, there would also be an understanding of the community benefits that a program like Stephanie's has right across the country. And I also think, Paul, it's really interesting because there's always a difference between something that's national versus something that's state. And often we got a little bit stuck in terms of corporates or multinationals actually looking for something that's got a national footprint rather than you know a singular state or individual town footprint.
0: But if, if I let's use the Coles example without denigrating Coles, I mean, they clearly sell products like chocolates and flavoured milk or whatever it happens to be, which is not great food for children. I mean, how did Stephanie reconcile that?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the most challenging conversations around the foundation, and and I've been gone for a few years now, was always around any potential partner that was around food. So whether that be frozen food or sweet food or soft drink or all of those things, and so you know that was always you know a very robust conversation about whether they're the right partners. But I think that, you know, possibly the foundation, I think is about 15 years old now, is that um, supermarkets have obviously worked really hard to look at other categories in terms of, you know, organic produce, is to supply apples for children who are in store and to really put a focus on their fresh and healthy eating. And I think that that change in terms of, the fact that supermarkets are actually um, presenting food that is more nutritious and healthy has kind of helped that decision-making and and possibly wouldn't have happened years back when um, that wasn't the case.
0: I still think I have to walk by the lolly aisle to get to it, but I I take your point. So (laughs) currently with your new project, the Aboriginal Cultural Centre and your scope in the strategic partnerships, I mean, obviously there's a lot of parameters there too, that you have to avoid. I I guess there's a lot of issues in the Indigenous community. We talk about whether it be diabetes or other issues. So that must be hard to find partnerships in that area too.
1: Yeah, this is a really new project for me, which I'm really enjoying learning about. And I'm really in the early days of the project speaking to the traditional owners and speaking to the staff on site. And in terms of the partnerships that we're looking to potentially carve out, which are the other tour operators, for example, that maybe really have things in common to partner up? And, you know, other ideas are in terms of really dialling up the native garden but would be really relying on the traditional owners and the staff to talk about what aspiration and and what things they would like and then be a facilitator of who might be the right partners to actually partner up for that. So I'm really looking forward to this one because I think it's a really important job to be a really good listener to document those aspirations and actually maybe match up partnerships that may not have ordinarily have happened but to be that broker of deal that can have some really positive outcomes for that particular project.
0: Now Natalie before we um, let you go and I appreciate your time I mean your partner is in the the snowball business now we should explain (laughs) that because snowballs are snowballing
1: right? That's right so my husband. Has been a restaurateur for many years. And about the same time that I set up my consultancy, he came out with I'm gonna I'm going to have a snowball business. And so, you know, that was a bit sort of frightening at the time, I have to say, but we're talking about pillows of marshmallow covered in curvature chocolate with beautiful long legged coconut on top of them and so i
0: want one already
1: well well i will make sure that we we get the different flavors across to you paul so yes we do have lots of jokes in our family that it's snowballing out of control and we have a snowmobile (laughs) to deliver it
0: (laughs) so you've been involved in food in one long time it's clearly a passion of yours it's clear an expertise of yours just give me a quick glimpse on the future. Is, is it going to be amazing? Are we going to bounce back? Or is this one of these things that people are going to sit back and go, I don't need to go to a restaurant every day anymore. I, I can cut back 20%, 30%. How do you see the next few months?
1: There is no doubt that this is going to be one of the most, you know, the biggest challenges that the service industry has ever seen. But I know so many people in the hospitality industry and my heart bleeds for them. I know they are incredibly passionate, resilient people and I think over time, and it is going to take some time, is that this incredible connection and I think we're all starting to feel a a little bit like this in our isolation, that connecting with people in our favourite little local space, having food, wine, a friendly face that we know is going to continue to be part of human nature And I think it's going to be a bit rocky and I think it's going to take a little while, but I think that incredible community of diverse cafes and restaurants that we love and enjoy here in Melbourne will once again flourish. But, again, the road is going to be a little bit rocky.
0: Uh, Natalie O'Brien from Natalie O'Brien & Co, thank you so much for your time today. I wish you all the best with all of your adventures and all of your ventures and all of your snowballs. So we look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Nat.
1: Wonderful thank you so much.